Welcome to Good Faith Stories from Good Faith Media. I'm Starlet Thomas, your host for our second episode. In each episode of Good Faith Stories, we'll bring you a collection of different stories, tied more or less around a theme. Unique and true stories as told by the people who live them. Each story is short, just a few minutes long, accompanied by music. You might laugh a little or cry a little, but we hope you'll think a lot and feel even more about what it means to be human. Our storytellers are people of faith, good faith, we'd say. But on good faith stories, you won't hear testimonies or sermons. No, you're going to hear stories. Real people telling you, this happened to me. This week's episode is organized around the theme of gifts. Gifts like love are all around. We find them not only under trees in December, but they come to us all year long in unexpected places and ways. Our first story in this episode comes from Mitch Randall, the CEO of Good Faith Media. Mitch, who grew up in Oklahoma, shares the story, Okima's Hands. As a kid growing up in eastern Oklahoma, there was nothing better than a birthday trip with my paternal grandmother. Okima Randall was a proud Muscogee Creek. In her younger days, she was a world champion fancy dancer. She could twirl and stomp like no other, keeping in perfect rhythm with the drums as her feathers and beadwork danced about her. People used to tell me it was beautiful, inspiring, and a little terrifying for white folks. Later on in life, she served on the tribal council, advocating for native causes, especially education for native students. She was an amazing woman. On my birthday each year, she would swing by our house, pick me up and take me for a very special outing. We would first go to Hank's Hamburgers, where a double cheeseburger would be washed down with a root beer float. Then we'd be off to a local department store where I was told to pick out something for school. I would always laugh when seeing her dark hand come over the dressing room door, handing me a shirt or sweater. She would always say, my grandson will be the best looking and best dressed boy at that school. My grandmother had a tendency to lie. Education was one of the most important hopes she had for her kids, grandkids, and great-grandkids. If Native peoples were to ever advance in this world, it would be because of education. I only wish she would have been alive and present the day Baylor University bestowed my doctoral hood. In 2002, I drove to Tulsa, where Okima lay in a hospital bed. I wanted to say goodbye. The Native spark had gone out of her eyes but there was still native power in her hands. I remember her reaching out with her dark hands, 
wanting to hold my hand. In the midst of medical equipment, the constant beeps of machines, and a steady stream of hospital personnel, my grandmother and I talked about the past. We laughed with joy, recalling all of those wonderful birthday memories, and we cried, knowing they were coming to an end. As she fell in and out of consciousness, I sat beside her bed. I held her hand and stroked her hair. She died days later. I recently turned 50 years old. Of course, there was no birthday trip with my grandmother, no Hank's hamburgers or department store shopping spree. But as I contemplated what it actually meant to be a half century old, I did receive another gift from my grandmother. It came as a memory, wrapped in an observation. Hands. My hands are similar to my grandmother's. As I thought about my age, my hands looked older, more so than I had ever noticed. Wrinkles were well-defined and pronounced on my dark Native American skin. But then I smiled as it dawned on me that my hands were looking more and more like those of my ancestors, like those of my grandmother, Okima. In fact, when I closed my eyes, I could still smell her perfume, hear her voice, and feel her touch. Her dark hands. Powerful hands that rocked a baby's cradle, celebrated birthdays, worked for education. Hands that held my own. That was Mitch Randall, the Chief Executive Officer of Good Faith Media. His Native American name is Numukutsu, which means buffalo. Our next story comes from author Joy Jordan Lake, who recalls an incident from her childhood in rural Tennessee. Buckle up for this memory of Joy's father in the tale, White Sheets. Dead is what I thought we were, or would be in moments. Dead in a navy blue Chevy Impala, a shotgun muzzle rammed through the open driver's side window, and a Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket thrust in beside it. I'll say it again, the man in the white hood snarled. Would you like to donate? He gave the word donate, extra emphasis, and extra snarl, so that we'd all understand its meaning, that this wasn't a donation at all, of course. It was payment for being allowed to drive safely on in one trembling piece, past the roadblock, 
the Ku Klux Klan had set up on the public road just outside our town limits. Now let me pause to make something clear. I am not technically young anymore, but neither am I as ancient as this story might make me sound. This was the early 1970s, and even as a kid there in the backseat of my parents' car, even I knew it was past an era when the Klan was known to be terrorizing small southern towns. Even at seven, I suspected there were laws on the book saying that even in rural Tennessee, you weren't really supposed to set up a roadblock of orange and white striped barrels on a public road and stop all traffic to ask with a snarl and the additional motivator of a shotgun muzzle for a donation to your club of cross-burning crazies. Apparently, though, no one had communicated to these gun-cradling guys that some steps toward racial justice progress had been made in the United States Or maybe they had gotten the message, come to think of it, and this was their reply. To dust off the costumes and the shotguns, rinse out a KFC bucket, and vent their rage and insecurity at a changing world by lining up their fluttering cotton like so many dingy white sheets on the line to threaten anyone who might dare pass. I mentioned about death and understanding that's where we were headed. No doubt in my mind that no matter how ridiculous, how almost laughably childish these dingy bedsheets appeared as they flowed about, they were not playing a child's game. Even at seven, wide-eyed and open-mouthed in the Impala's back seat, I understood who they were and that we were about to die. Because it was clear from the expression in the eyes I could see in the slits of the white hood leaning into our car that this guy was not planning on taking no for an answer and that he would be fine letting his shotgun speak for him. And now the men in the bedsheets were circling the car, were rocking that old navy blue Chevy Impala. We were taking too long, apparently, to drop a handful of bills in the bucket. Or they could see on my dad's face that he would be one of the difficult ones. But here's what I recall most clearly of all, that we would die, yes, but also there was great comfort in not having to wonder in those moments of excruciating tension what my father would say. My father was a Baptist preacher, a quiet, intense man, well-read, and not a man given to cursing. And yet, even knowing our bookish, reserved father and his penchant for bottling anger inside, I had no doubt, not a sliver of a shadow of one, that he would speak now and that there would be consequences because he was about to tell the billowing bedsheets, I was quite sure, tell them to go to hell. Honestly, I don't recall my dad's exact words, only that go to hell would be a fair translation, and the clan boys heard it loud and clear. 
rocking our Chevy Impala so hard in their fury, we were sure it would flip onto its hood. Looking back, I do understand how white privilege works, that the chances of the Klan mowing down a white preacher, his wife, and younger child just outside the town limits were small compared to our having been a family of color. But I'm also a parent now. I know the difference between facing danger that's threatening only myself and danger that threatens one of my kids. I understand that many of the donations already in that KFC bucket may have come from people at the steering wheel who weren't so much eager contributors and blatant racist, so much as people terrified for the safety of the other people in the car. And that's how this sort of intimidation works, right? So here's the gift of education my father and my mother gave me, not the university tuition they self-sacrificially paid for at a lovely liberal arts college in South Carolina. I'm deeply grateful for that too. But here's the education from my parents that seared into my bones that day that I carry with me every day of my life, that you owe it to the other people in your car and your town and your country to say what has to be said, even if the ugliness, the bullying, the pressure is intense, even if the cost looks double-barreled, that even if you're quiet and conflict-averse, even if you're not typically a cusser or a shouter, even if you're not someone with a big international platform or a media presence, you speak up. You say, or you're right, or you let it be known however you have to, that any behavior, white hoods or not, that marginalizes a whole group of people, any language that demeans a whole population, any actions that threaten the peace and safety and pursuit of happiness of anyone in the human community, simply must be told no. In whatever language or foot on the gas you need to make that most clear. And if you live through the moment, you thank God, not just for being alive, but also for not letting your hand dip into your wallet and drop in the crumpled bills of compromise. Because that's so easy, so incredibly easy for any of us to do. And you drive on, knowing that your kid, or maybe your neighbors, or coworker, or friends, or enemies, that someone was watching you refuse to be a pawn in the game of power, and that maybe, just maybe, you provided an education. And meanwhile, that even the quiet and bookish and not overly brave can defy evil, can leave the shotgun-toting or the suit-wearing, race-baiting bullies, fuming and impotent, standing back there with all their sneering hate and their power turn to nothing but dust. That was best-selling author Joy Jordan Lake. Her latest book, under a Gilded Moon is a work of historical fiction set at Biltmore House. It just came out. Learn more at joyjordanlake.com. I'm Starlet Thomas. We'll be right back with more Good Faith Stories. 
This is Mitch Randall, CEO of Good Faith Media. If you like compelling and authentic stories, real stories that are both intriguing and complex, consider making a donation at goodfaithmedia.org. At Good Faith Media, there's always more to tell. Welcome back to Good Faith Stories from Good Faith Media. I'm Starlet Thomas, your host for this episode. Today, we're hearing stories about gifts, true stories told by the people who live them, stories about things we've been given, presents that come to us in memories, experiences, educations, opportunities, stories about gifts. Our next story comes from Erica Whitaker in Kentucky. She witnessed and tells Louisville Apocalypse. It's a muggy June morning, Saturday, a time I normally spend in PJs on the couch binge-watching Netflix, stuck in some apathetic slump between pandemic and protest. My peace is often interrupted by my furry children who bark at the Amazon Prime truck delivering more toilet paper. And the worst injustice I face is forgetting where I put that TV remote. There have been many a Saturday morning where I chant to myself from my position of comfort, no justice, no peace. But this Saturday morning is different. This time the chants come from discomfort, from the disenchanted streets of Louisville, Kentucky. Seven a.m., I park my Subaru in an empty lot downtown Louisville. The familiar urban streets are empty with eerie apocalyptic abandonment. Boarded up windows of stores and businesses reflect the fearful state of my city. I walk down the sidewalk wearing my black clergy robe like some side character from the Matrix. My white rainbow stole blows in the warm, humid breeze. The mask clinging to my face mirrors the anxiety clinging to my chest. My breath increases. My blood pressure rises. The protest at Injustice Square following the murder of Breonna Taylor continues to catch the attention and elevate the angst of all near and far. The heightened hostility of aggressive and even violent radicals on both sides turn my thoughts round and round, strapping my paranoia to the seat of some insane mental carnival ride. Militia, armed and ready, from rural Kentucky, are on their way to counter-protest. I, along with other white clergy, are called to help. Help by holding the front lines for peace. Peace is the ointment for any uneasy soul, but the responsibility of holding it now unsettles my spirit. How could I hold peace only a few months after another deadly case of police brutality that has left my city in a never-ceasing storm of anxiety? My city was finding no justice and certainly no peace. As I make my way to the courtyard of the century-old Catholic Church, I try desperately to center myself with breathing treatments I learned that one time I embraced yoga. I recall the soothing phrase of the yogi, Breathe in peace, breathe out fear. My lungs expand as I arrive at the meeting ground where faith leaders of all background gather next to a pale blue porta potty. I contemplate relieving the excessive amount of coffee I chugged in the car before making my way to the protest. 
I changed my mind immediately when the sour sewer smell oozing, oozing from the cracked bathroom door twists my intestines to a pukeable degree. Great. My bladder has no justice and my nose no peace. Prior to leaving the church garden, the clergy and I plan, pray, and then make our way towards the epicenter of conflict. As we march, we chant songs, prophetic melodies calling for peace and justice. The tension of my body becomes like the heat of the sun, increasing the closer we get to the core of the protest. The noise grows louder as we approach. A group of men stand like guards on the outskirts of the square. The moment they see us, I become hauntingly aware of my whiteness and the whiteness of those around me. The guards contort their bodies not with hostility but with determination to keep their people safe. But as soon as they are told we are faith leaders coming in peace, their bodies realign to a posture of peace. I envy them. Quickly their fists rise in the air in gratitude, proclaiming to all around that we are allowed inside in Justice Square. We begin our march around the square, encircling the weary justice warriors in the makeshift settlement. Black, white, and all sorts of people of color make a temporary home in the park across from the courthouse. The scene feels like some fantastical family reunion, a twilight zone of sorts in the middle of my city. Educated folks, blue-collar workers, homeless people, community servants, college students, the homeless, the elderly, the compassionate, the angered, the grieving, all are gathered peacefully together in desperate determination to see justice on their small piece of earth. Our march leads us to the front lines. We stand behind a metal makeshift fence. Police before us, protesters behind us. We wait for the armed militia to arrive. Over the next few hours, the chants grow louder. No justice, no peace. No justice, no peace. There I stand, hands open to the heavens my heart warmed with the wonder of what I just witnessed. In that small space, I felt a humming buzz of justice returning to the world, a sensation of peace beginning to settle once again in the hearts of humans. Hmm. Now I fully believe with all my being that there can be a place beyond anger, beyond anxiety, beyond apathy, a space where we all can know justice and know peace. was Erica Whitaker, senior pastor of Louisville's Butchell Park Baptist Church and a member of Empower West, 
a group of black and white pastors coming together to empower the West End of Louisville. Our last story in this episode comes from Ben Fanning in Charleston, South Carolina. Join Ben on the corporate jet. a road-weary business traveler about to make my third trip in a month to Latin America. And just as I was booking my flight, I received an email that the corporate jet just happened to be headed for the same destination. I immediately arranged my first flight on the corporate jet. I was so excited that I could barely contain myself. The day of my flight, I arrived so early that I even beat the pilots and everyone else to the airport. When the pilot opened the plane, I landed in a plush leather seat right up front. One by one, the top executives boarded. I've seen their photos on our website, but had never met them in person. It was a moment of true triumph, and I personally greeted each one. We were all set to go with a full flight, when another executive arrived late as the doors were just closing. (laughs) No seats left, or so I thought. The good news was that I didn't get kicked off the flight. The late boarding executive pointed to the back of the plane, to the bathroom, where I sat on the toilet for the entire two hour flight except when it was in use and I stood waiting in the aisle or that time that they asked me to come out to make cocktails. Now, I could have experienced this as profoundly humiliating. I could have stormed out and flown commercial as usual, but that day I came to understand the fundamental principle about humility. You see, when it comes to humility, I didn't really think it had a place in the corporate office environment. I thought humility meant weakness. It meant not standing up for yourself. It even meant not really even being a leader. But that day changed all that. You see, The executive team met together in comfort. I got what I wanted exchanging a 10-hour flight ordeal for an easy two-hour trip with many of our executives. Plus, I was left with a memorable story that I called upon to break the ice in a future conversation to ask my company to help pay for my MBA, which they eventually did. I can even remember approaching certain executives in the hall using my elbow to elbow them and saying, hey, need a drink? (laughs) You see, when it comes to humility, you just gotta be willing to take a long-term perspective and sit on a toilet on the way to Latin America. Ben Fanning is president of an international training company number one best-selling author, an Inc. magazine columnist, and host of the CEO Sessions podcast, where he interviews C-suite leaders from organizations like Honeywell, Dell, 
Dollar General, Advance Auto Parts, and Dunkin' Brands. Learn more about Ben at benfanning.com. You've been listening to Good Faith Stories from Good Faith Media. I'm Starlet Thomas. We at Good Faith Media know there's always more to tell, and everyone has a story. What's your story? We'd love to hear it and help you share it. Contact us at goodfaithmedia.org or get in touch directly with our producer, Cliff Vaughn. Email him at cliff at goodfaithmedia.org. Make sure you subscribe to Good Faith Stories to get our next episode as soon as it drops. And check out all of our podcast offerings and more at goodfaithmedia.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.